Attention all personnel. Incoming podcast. This is MASH Matters. You know, Jeff, I always open these things. Would you like to open this episode? Open the episode? Yeah. No, go ahead. You do it well. Go ahead. You open it this time. I'll, I'll do the next one. Oh, okay. All right. Hi. Welcome to MASH Matters. My name is Ryan Patrick, and this is Jeff Maxwell. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Ryan. This is Jeff Maxwell. Boy, am I happy to be here today. Uh, I'm actually happy to be anywhere today, but especially (laughs) here on MASH Matters, because we have a wonderful episode for you today. But first, you know, podcasting is a big thing, and a lot of the bigger podcasts, as they gain in popularity, they start attracting some attention from companies and businesses that want to advertise on those podcasts. Yes, sir. And so I am thrilled to announce that we have our first sponsor. This is an incredible moment. It is. And it rarely happens. I mean, really, you know, to be contacted out of the blue uh, by somebody that that thinks there's enough of our podcast to say, hey, I want to sponsor this. That is pretty amazing, isn't it? That's, That's terrific. It brings me great joy to tell you that this episode of MASH Matters is brought to you by the Style Right Shoe Company of Storm Lake, Iowa. You can try their Style Right black and white wingtip shoes for just $8.95. And no, you cannot afford to not give your feet the most comfortable home they ever had. Remember, if your shoes aren't becoming to you, then you should be coming to us. The Style Right Shoe Company, proud sponsor of MASH Matters. Beautiful. Welcome. Welcome our new sponsor. (laughs) So this is going to be one of those episodes where we just answer a lot of listener questions. But these particular questions, well, we're going back in the Wayback Machine. We started this podcast in September of 2018. Right out of the gate, we had people emailing us questions, Facebook messaging us questions, tweeting us questions, and we just start compiling a list. We have this growing list of questions. The challenge is that more questions keep coming in, and when they do, push us some of those older questions back farther and farther. So today, we are going to be answering a lot of what I'm going to call antique questions. (laughs) (laughs) These are some of the questions that came in a long time ago. These questions are so old. Some of them were actually written in Sanskrit, which is really weird. I don't think Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen was even filmed yet when some of these questions came in. But seriously, these are some older questions, some older voicemails, and I apologize to the people who sent them in. We still have more older questions, too, that we're not going to get to in this episode, but we will get to them as soon as we can. Bear with us. You might hear the answer to your question sometime in 2028. So anyone on serious medication, please keep taking it because eventually we will get to your question. No kidding, Jeff. We have so many questions. I think the run of MASH Matters may outlast the run of MASH itself at this point. (laughs) So we're just going to power through a lot of these questions, starting with Tristan from Australia. Mm. He says, I'm thoroughly enjoying the podcast. I have tuned in from episode one. The perspectives brought by each of you have made me see the show in a different light. I've been watching MASH for as long as I can remember, and like a lot of others, it was something that brought our family together. I recall asking mom on countless occasions what MASH stood for. Clearly, it didn't stick. Anyway, after binge-watching most of season five recently, I have two questions for Jeff. One, how many latrines do you think you dug in your time on the show? And two, in the episode Hawkeye Get Your Gun, where Colonel Potter and Hawkeye go to the Korean hospital, what hand did Igor have when Potter commandeers the cards? Okay, moving right along to question two. Uh, 
Uh, wait, 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 just a minute, just a minute. What? As we've stated in, in previous episodes, mm-hmm. you did your fair share of latrine digging. Yes, yes. Manual labor there at the ranch. Yeah. How many latrines do you think you, you dug in your time on the show? Uh, 327. Okay, good. That's uh, accurate if you look it up. And there's research been done. It's 327. All right, latrine. that's canon now. All right. No, I, the, honest answer to the question, no idea. No. Okay, but I have a question for you. So when you were doing the scenes where you were digging latrines Mm -hmm. or painting rocks, Mm -hmm. how much of the work is already done and how much of the work are you actually doing? Well, painting the rock, if I was actually painting a rock, I was probably painting that rock. If it was uh, something suggesting that these rocks had been painted, if there were four of them and I was painting the fifth one and they would suggest that I had painted those four, I didn't really paint those four. I was only painting the fifth one. So it would only be the one that's right in front of me would that any actor would be doing painting that because they wouldn't take the time for the actor to paint those rocks. They got rock painter guys that they're paying a lot of money. Those are union rock painters too, right? Rock painting is a very good career <laughs> in show business. So it would only be what I was right in front of. So if I was digging latrine, the hole would already be there. Yeah. They dug that out. And so I get in a chip, get in the hole and throw the stuff out. All right. <laughs> so there I am and in the hole and slinging dirt. And that's what I would do. And then they'd say, cut. I go, can I get out of the hole now, please? <laughs> and they'd say, okay, come on, get out of the hole. And that would be it. So I remember doing that. I think I remember doing that twice. Okay. I think that's what my head is saying. Is that what your head is saying? Yes, that's what your head is saying. You did it twice. Okay. Okay. So question two, you're sitting in the mess tent, you're playing cards. Mm -hmm. And I I think I probably know the answer to this question, but (laughs) do you remember what hand you had that Igor was so impressed with before Colonel Potter came and commandeered your cards? No. No, I don't. I have zero idea. No, I wish I knew. That would be kind of fun to remember that. I actually don't even remember the scene. <laughs> but if I did remember the scene, and again, the hand that I had was probably not really a hand. It was something that they said, you're going to be excited about the hand, so do excited about the hand thing, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I was excited about the hand, but unless they shot it, but that would be a close-up of the hand, which I would never even know they were doing. So I actually probably didn't have a good hand. I was just, you know, acting. Well, in the in the context of the scene, your character, Igor, was very excited about this particular hand. So I'm going to guess, if you are indeed playing poker, I'm going to guess that you had, at the very least, a flush. Sure. Yeah. Maybe even higher. Maybe you had a full house or heaven forbid you had four of a kind before Potter took your hand and took the deck with him. Well, it was good enough to have the colonel yank my cards out of my hand and, you know, take it from me. It was rather rude of Potter to do that. Well, it kind of was, wasn't it? Let him finish the hand. Yeah, really. Poor Igor. Glad we got that one (laughs) cleared up. Okay. (laughs) And (laughs) number two, when when did that come in? Uh, 1981, I think that think Reagan was still in office. Yes. And from David, <laughs> from David Mann in Durham, North Carolina. Hello again, Jeff and Ryan. Several years ago in Los Angeles, I had a coworker who was a, of Korean descent. We were discussing favorite TV shows, and I happen to mention MASH was my favorite. She rather abruptly let me know without hesitation she despised the show. Somewhat taken aback, I asked her why. She explained the portrayal of Koreans in the episodes was wrong and at times insulting. She said the writers used a hodgepodge of Japanese, Chinese, and other Asian stereotypes and very little 
of what was shown had anything to do with actual Korean people or culture. Have you ever come across this concern before, either while MASH was in production or in years since? Okay, and the question three. <laughs> I know, this Let's is a pretty see. serious question. Uh, well, it, it is a serious. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give a quick answer. Yeah. Yes, I have heard that objection. The answer that I always heard was there were more Chinese actors than there were Korean actors. So going into the pool of people that they could get to play various parts, there was always an attempt to cast actual Korean actors, but there were so many more Chinese uh, or Japanese actors that they just were stuck. And so they went for that. Now, in 2020, that would not happen. Right. That would be a, a really serious problem. But in when 19, whenever that was done, the show was done, that was probably true. It may have been true. I don't think anybody set out to say, hey, let's not cast Korean actors. I, I really don't believe that. I don't anybody having anything to do with MASH, that would have been in their brain at all. So it's possible, you know, if they had to pick or they had to have somebody of a particular age or particular sex and there wasn't a Korean actor available for that particular part, they had to do something else. And that's probably why the casting people and casting directors did it. I can see no possibility that anybody was being discriminatory against Koreans whatsoever. So that would be my opinion. Many of the criticisms that I hear about MASH now, you have to consider the context of the time that it was shot and the, and the time it was produced. Mm -hmm. It was a different world and things were viewed differently back then. You have to understand too that we're not too far removed from Mickey Rooney playing a Chinese man in a motion picture. Yeah. John Wayne playing Genghis Khan. Yeah. It was that era. Right. And sadly, yes, there are some uh, stereotypes that are portrayed in MASH, but at the same time, that was what you saw in a lot of entertainment at the time. But I think MASH did something that most other shows and movies didn't do, which it did at least understand the plight of these people. Mm -hmm. America was coming out of the Vietnam War, and so there were a lot of people who had broad visions of who these people were. And so I think MASH did a good job of trying to get Mr. and Mrs. Joe Schmo here in America to understand the conditions that these people were living in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I agree that there would be more of an effort nowadays. And to that degree, there would be more of a pool to pull from of actors of Korean descent. Mm -hmm. At the time, there just may not have been like you said, there just may not have been that many to, to choose from. Yeah, well said, because I, I really don't believe that anyone connected with MASH, as I say, would have been discriminatory against anybody for any reason whatsoever, because there was just none of that culture among all of the people who were producing the show, writing the show, directing the show, acting in the show, or casting the show. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it was probably kind of accidental, and I think there probably was a certain pool that didn't exist of Korean actors that they could draw from. Yeah. You know, that's too bad. Uh, it's unfortunate, but... Kind of a sign of the times. Yeah, I don't know. All right, moving All right. on. Jeff and Ryan, my name is Karen Jeet Singh. I recently discovered your podcast, and I can't tell you how much I have enjoyed it. I recently listened to the episode featuring Kelly mm -hmm. and absolutely loved it. I was so heartbroken to hear the news of her passing. I'd like to send my condolences, Jeff, to you and your friendship and affection for Kelly shown through on that episode. Thank you. The MASH community mourns together and sends you our love. Thank you. I have been meaning to write in for some time because I'd love to tell you why MASH 
matters to me. I'm not your average MASH fan. I'm a 33-year-old South Asian Canadian female. My love for MASH goes back many years to before I even started high school. I started watching it on TV and then slowly got all the DVDs. I never knew anybody who watched the show, so I have a very personal connection to it, a special love for MASH. In a way, it isolated me from my peers in the sense that I didn't have anybody to talk to about the show. Not many people understood why I loved it so much, but it gives me so much happiness and satisfaction. It was even my go-to show to watch whenever I was sick. Visiting the doctors and nurses at the 407-7th was just as good as any medicine. It feels like the characters on the show are like my family, and it gives me a lot of comfort to watch them whenever I'm feeling down or going through something difficult in my life. How about that? Mm. My parents used to watch it back in the late 70s when they moved to Canada. My mom loves the mess tent scenes because it reminds her of when she was a nursing student in India. They had similar living arrangements. I loved listening to your discussion with John Rappaport. It was so insightful to hear about his work before and after MASH. And I also found out that he wrote one of my favorite scenes in all of MASH from the episode called Morale Victory, where Charles convinces a soldier who is a concert pianist not to give up on himself. That episode deeply affected me. I wrote about it in more detail on my blog. And I'm going to put a link to her article in the show notes for this episode. Very cool. We'll have to let John know. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, I could go on and on, but I'd just like to say thanks for doing this podcast. Hearing Jeff's perspective and getting to hear all the behind-the-scenes stories is so wonderful. You've given me a place to belong and somewhere to go when I want to further indulge in my love for MASH. Thank you both. Ah, Thank you, Karen G. Thank you. Very special. All righty. From Greg Birkin. Dear Jeff and Ryan, kudos, bravo, cheers, take a bow, please. No, two. Oh, that's all right. Well, thanks for writing. Okay, next. (laughs) Uh, You both deserve an enormous thank you for such evocative and enjoyable commentary on each of the delightful episodes of your MASH Matters podcast. I especially love the guest star stories. Jeff, your vivid descriptions of the day in the life at the ranch and on set are truly treasured moments, which we really enjoy hearing about. More of those, please. One initiative I um, think your podcast can consider supporting is the studio release of MASH on Blu-ray. I don't think that MASH is currently available on the superior to DVD quality format. We need to mount a campaign to motivate Fox to release all the MASH episodes on Blu-ray, along with all of your wonderful commentary and bonus materials that make it truly collectible. In my tech career as a technology evangelist at Intel Corporation, I've never heard that term before, (laughs) I worked with all the studios on the DVD format in the late 90s. It's time for MASH to be released in super high resolution on Blu-ray. Dargon it. I'm happy to help make this happen. Again, thanks so much for a tremendously rewarding podcast. I'm a huge fan of your work. Cool. Yeah. Thank you, Greg. I mean, I'm not going to speak for you, but Greg seems much smarter than me. Yeah. I mean, a technology evangelist. Yeah. Uh, that looks really cool on a business card. <laughs> I don't have any idea what it takes to get a studio to release, consider releasing something to Blu-ray that has not been released yet. I mean, we could threaten Disney, but I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you point. go right ahead. <laughs> Just say Ryan Patrick. And go ahead and say threaten. I'll just wait in the car. I'll wait in the car. Why is there a windowless van pulling into my driveway? Hold on. What are you doing there? Those people are quick. Hey. They are quick. Look, Walt, we've got the Polaroids, all right? Just release MASH on Blu-ray, and they'll never see the light of day. All right. What is Blu-ray anyway? I don't even know. I forget it. Came in, it was a big machine, wasn't it? I mean, you had to have a big player, and then you, it was a big disc. I think you're thinking of Laserdisc. Oh, 
never mind. Blu-ray is just a higher quality DVD. I knew that. I was testing you. I wanted to know if ah, you actually gotcha. knew what Blu-ray was. <laughs> and, and you, of course, do. And I'm very thankful that you do because I don't have to do any more work. Greg, we're going to put this ball back in your court. You get the ball rolling on that and let us know what we can do to help. Greg, of course, may not even recall sending us this email. (laughs) All of these listeners may not remember sending us this email because they did it like 10 years ago. (laughs) Maybe he could get it released on Laserdisc too. Uh And 8-Track. You can get it on 8-Track. That would be great. Imagine <laughs> the audio. <laughs> I like it. That's I'm going to work on that. Yeah. I like that one. What's great though is Match is available on so many different formats now. But I agree. I think it would be great to get a really great superior version of the show. And like he said, you know, maybe you can get different commentaries from cast members and with new material. Because as we know, Jeff, there are still a lot of Mash fans out there. Yeah. No, I think it's a good idea. I think Greg's onto something. Yeah. Go, Greg. Go. (laughs) All right. Moving on here. Matthew Grace says, hey, Jeff and Ryan, I want to say you two have a great podcast. Well, thank you. I really enjoy the interview episodes you did with the cast and writers. I love that you guys go into the history of the show rather than just recapping it. Anyway, about myself, I'm a 26-year-old who lives in Warren, Pennsylvania, and I got into the show because of my mom. Well, he's 41 now, so I just want to make that clear. (laughs) (laughs) He says, originally, when I was in middle school, I remember trying out some episodes, but I didn't like them. Once I got into high school, I got into the show, and now we watch the DVDs together. For my question, it's about BJ's first episode. There's the scene where they switch out the flat tire for the spare, so obviously there's no longer a tire on the back mount. In the latter scene, once they either arrive to Rosie's bar or get out of it, we see the spare tire back on the mount. Obviously, it shouldn't be there because the tire is supposedly being used. Then once Frank gets arrested in the G we see the spare tire is once again removed from the mount. What's up with the inconsistency involving that spare tire? Now, this question also ties into a voicemail that we received a while back from Paul. Hi, MASH Matters. My name is Paul from Connecticut, and I'm calling. I haven't even made it through my first MASH Matters podcast. I just got the number, and I had to call immediately because I've got a burning question. And that is, why in early episodes, or maybe in just one episode, when Hawkeye was writing a letter to his family, or specifically his dad, he, he was writing to him in Vermont, and he had stated that in the TV show. And then later it was Crabapple Cove, Maine, of course. Now, I was wondering if the books, because I've never read the books, Smash Books, because for those who don't know, it started in books. So he was in Vermont, or his dad was in Vermont, and then his dad was in Crabapple Cove, and then they focused all of this history in Crabapple Cove, Maine, and I'm wondering why that decision was made to move from Vermont to Crabapple Cove. Now, if that's not a crazy fan question that's so minute and obnoxious, <laughs> then I don't know what is, but I hope you can answer it. Thank you very much. And I look forward to listening to every single Mash Matters podcast many times over. Thank you very much. You know, that voicemail and Matthew's question are similar. Yeah. Now, with Matthew's question, you know, nowadays, I think on a lot of shows, they will take a lot of digital photos. So if somebody is doing something, they'll take a photo of them doing it while they're shooting the scene. So when they do a reshoot, they know that everything is back in place exactly where it needs to be. Somehow along the way, they shot some scenes with the tire on the Jeep and sometimes they didn't. Like Jeff, do you remember, was there somebody who was in charge of continuity on the show? Uh, yes, but they took a lot of sedatives during their work. <laughs> Probably why some of these things happen. Tire? What tire? Jeep? Was there a Jeep there? I don't, I'm not sure. 
well, uh, theoretically uh, and in reality, there is a script supervisor mm-hmm. and a script supervisor sits there and listens to the dialogue and writes down things on the script that gives the director and editor information later how to put the movie together. They also are kind of responsible for hanging on to the some of the continuity like those things, like those issues. But if there was a more important thing happening that she had to get written down before she got to the thing, and it's possible she wrote down the more important thing having to do with the dialogue rather than, you know, where was the spare tire, that may explain why the spare tire was on and off and on and off. So sometimes that can happen. Yeah. People are human and just kind of, you know, it gets by them. Oh, sure. In terms of Paul from Connecticut's voicemail, what did he say? <laughs> I forget. See, I would have forgotten. His him. question was Crabapple Cove. Crabapple right. Cove. Yeah. yeah. In one episode, it said that he was in Vermont. And then every other episode, it was in Maine. And he brought up books. Crabapple Cove was Hawkeye's hometown in the novel. Now, Crabapple Cove, there is no real town in Maine by that name, but the fictitious town of Crabapple Cove was in the novel. Why, though, didn't writers remember that? Or why wasn't there a running show Bible where, you know, Crabapple Cove is his hometown. Hawkeye does not have a sister. Hawkeye's mom is deceased. You know, Margaret's father came back from the grave (laughs) as the series (laughs) progressed, and he even visited the 4077. Henry's wife at one point was named Mildred. Potter said he was from Nebraska at one point. I mean, there's all these little things. Nowadays, series are produced for binging. Little details like that are much easier to catch. Back then, there was no binging. You waited uh, until the next week to watch the episode. And if you missed it, then you had to wait until it was a rerun. Mm -hmm. So those little details weren't caught as often as they are now. And all the alcoholism, which was rampant in the uh, writer's room. They had no... They were like, MASH, what does that stand for? I don't know. I, I, I'm kidding, of course. No, and, and there were, you know, the, the question I'm asked a lot of, one time I was referred to uh, as a sergeant, and then mm-hmm. and then I turned into a private, mm-hmm. and then uh, I was referred to as Maxwell, and then all of a sudden I was Straminsky. <laughs> How does that happen with writers? You got four or five, six different writers and a couple of directors and some actors saying things to you, and you're trying to get these scripts out and get the stories right and you're reading these things and rewriting and rewriting sometimes you know the night before and so some of that stuff just gets away from you and you know they want to get to the core of the story and they're more focused on doing that rather than all those kind of little details that audiences hear an audience will pick up on but at the time when you're in that bubble you don't necessarily see it well the next time we have one of the writers on the podcast that's a yeah. question I'd like to ask yeah absolutely we should do that we, we should Get one of those darn writers on the phone. We can get them out of the rehab center and uh, <laughs> see what they say. <laughs> well, that's the, the last writer I'll ever talk to again, I suppose. <laughs> that ended my career with the writers, didn't it? Oh, wow. Okay, so moving right along from Matthew Gray. This is a question I have for Ryan, which is about Radar's last episode. Ryan, pay very careful attention to this because this is for you. Mm-hmm. What? Oh, okay. Yeah, near the end of the, <laughs> near the end of the episode, we have him walking through the mess tent, which has the goodbye party set up for him. 
I was wondering if you found that scene to be one of the more emotional moments for the series. For myself, that scene really got to me because the camp took a lot of effort and time to throw a party for a staff member they loved, but the war ruined their chance to give Radar a true goodbye. What really hit home on me was the goodbye Radar, we love you banner. So, Mr. Patrick, were you very emotionally moved by that? Uh, so... I have some feelings about that episode, Goodbye Radar, his last episode. And it has nothing to do with the writing. It has nothing to do with how it ended. I think it was a genius move to have his party ruined by the war. My beef, and and you know, I love Gary Berghoff. I love his portrayal of Radar. We've talked about it many times. We talked about it with him. I did not understand his choice to play Radar so angry in that episode. Interesting. It was such a departure from the Radar that we knew. And and I understand, you know, the war had changed him. Maybe that way. But I felt like he was too angry. And so when he left, it didn't have as much of an emotional punch to me as it probably should have, because I was so confused as to why he was so angry and hardened. Yeah. Now, the moment that gets me in that episode more than any other is at the very end, after he has left and Potter and Hawkeye and BJ go back to the swamp and they see that Radar had left his teddy bear laying on Hawkeye's cot. That, to me, is the most emotional moment of that episode. Mm-hmm. But but Matthew's question was, if I found that to be one of the more emotional moments for the series, I'm, I'm going to say it's not just because of the reasons I've already discussed. Now, some of the moments, and there are a lot of great emotional moments, some of the moments that get me with Radar, having his teddy bear blessed by Captain Chandler, then there's Hawkeye and Charles' conversation about their fathers and the episode Sons and Bowlers. Obviously, the OR scene announcing Henry's death was devastating. And here's one that might surprise people. There is one line. This line destroys me. And it's a line that's said by the person that you would not expect, but it's Frank. He is talking on the phone to his mother in the episode, Margaret's engagement. And he says, well, you see, I had this friend and this friend, um, well, just pretended to like me, you know, the way dad used to. <laughs> uh. That line kills me. Oh, yeah. We learn so much about Frank Burns in that moment. After that, he goes back to being the weasel and the conniving and the racist and all that. But at that one moment, we suddenly get a glimpse into, okay, now we're starting to see why Frank is Frank. Mm -hmm. And I need to look up and see who wrote that because that writer did something that I never thought that anybody could do. And that was to make me feel empathy for Frank Burns. Yeah. From an emotional standpoint, those are the moments that really stand out to me. That's great. I, I'd forgotten that. And that boy, is that a moment and a half when he said that? Oh, really yeah. Was, really was. All right. Moving on. Laura Empey. Hello, Laura. She says, hello, Jeff and Ryan. Your podcast just keep getting better. Huh. I hope so. Huh. If you could interview anyone, not necessarily for MASH, who would it be? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> that is a very broad, open-ended question. Loaded, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> so I will say that from a perspective of MASH, if we had ever had the opportunity to talk to Larry Gelbart, I would love to have had the chance to talk to McLean Stevenson or Alan Arbus. And especially, I would have loved to have talked to David Ogden Stiers. 
the other mash related ones, I've had the chance to talk to just about everybody. Of course we have that. What's that guy's name? Um, Al uh, Albert. Well, Alan, 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 Alan. Alan. I don't think we've talked to him yet, but everybody else, I, you know, we've had the chance to talk to him. Non-MASH related, I'm going to give you two names, one who is deceased and one who is still alive. The one who's alive is Mel Brooks, Mm -hmm. who obviously you have a connection to because if listeners don't know, you made an appearance in Mel Brooks' classic film, Young Frankenstein. Yes. And then the other one who is deceased, what I wouldn't give to sit down with the great Jack Benny, Mm -hmm. who in, in my opinion is the greatest comedian of all time and he even has a connection with mash because they make reference to uh, his show quite often throughout the series now cut that out okay mr benny rochester now how many times have i told you you see never to interrupt me when i'm doing the show oh don oh mary Oh, Dennis. Now that's the Mills Brothers. Deborah Padgett. <laughs> now, Mr. Benny, sing, Dennis. <laughs> so those, those are mine. Is there anybody that comes to your mind? Yes, and I'm not kidding about any of these. I'd love to talk to Sid Caesar, because oh, yeah. Sid Caesar was a huge influence in my life as a kid and grew up watching him and went, I want to do that, Mommy. <laughs> and she let me do that, which was very kind of her to do. I'd love to talk to Lucille Ball. Mm. I would like to hear the way she went from sort of being a glamour girl to a a comedian of incredible, iconic stature. I'd like to talk to Jerry Lewis. I would like to talk to Sammy Davis Jr. and ask him how he was able to sing like he sang (laughs) (laughs) and hear all the stories about the Rat Pack. Mm -hmm. I would like to talk to uh, some other people. I call them, but they won't call me back which is frustrating. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And there's a list, you know, I like to talk to a whole bunch of folks. It would be really interesting. And and certainly Larry Gelbart in terms of related to MASH, boy, that would have been a wonderful moment for us to be able to have him on the show and talk to him about it. He was especially brilliant human being. And uh, I kick myself because I'm so lucky that I was able to spend any time around him whatsoever. And he keeps saying, your name again? What what was your name again? I don't know. Just call me anything you want to. It doesn't matter. And uh, But he was a special human being. It would be great to hear his interpretation of, <laughs> of what we're doing. Yeah. His rebuttal. <laughs> his rebuttal, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so those are pretty good groups of people we could talk to. Yeah. Oh, and, and not to mention, uh, well, I, I will mention, Wayne Rogers, mm. unfortunately, passed away. Yeah. Because I'd love to hear his... Um, reason for leaving. I'd love to hear him say what it was yes. that he, you know, got kind of tired of and and decided to leave this incredible television show. And the fact, you know, what gave him the ability to say, well, it's not going to bother me if I don't have this check, because he certainly was able to do that. And not a lot of people, not a lot of actors can, but he did. So I'd love, I'd love to hear his, you know, his side of the whole thing, but unfortunately we can't. Oh, yeah. Oh, now I'm depressed. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Laura. Let's see. Kurt Lind says, hello, Mr. Patrick and Mr. Maxwell. Love the show and so happy you guys do it. My name is Kurt and I live in Oz or Kansas, whichever you prefer. (laughs) I hated MASH when my dad would watch it. 
I was born in 88, so I didn't watch it live. But as I got older and wiser, my wife showed it to me. And now it is my all-time favorite show. I own all the seasons on DVD. And whenever I'm sick or having daddy and kids time, we watch it. I actually have a video of my son at two years old humming the theme song. Hey, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we have to pay for some of that? Or if I did that? <laughs> I don't know. I won't sing anymore. <laughs> Sorry for the rambling. I was wondering when Mr. Maxwell talked about how the cast had their clicks with the main cast and the minor roles. I was wondering if Mr. Farr ever became part of the main cast click or did he stay as one of the cool kids? Thank (laughs) you guys again and keep up the great work. That was very nice. (sighs) Mr. Farr became uh, part of the main cast click uh, and he left the cool kids out in the park. I mean, he split. (laughs) Bye. See ya. (laughs) Uh, no, he didn't do that. No, there wasn't, you know, there was not a click per se. Uh, The quote main cast were rehearsing something and they were sitting around doing something and waiting to go, you know, shoot a scene. They were waiting and doing it where they waited and did it. And other people were in other places doing what they were doing and waiting to do. So it wasn't necessarily a determined emotional click. It was simply the job. You where you work, Kurt, I'm assuming you have a job, Kurt. And if you don't, I'm sorry, but if I get one, but if you do, you do something somewhere and somebody else is doing something somewhere else. So it's not like you're not, you don't want to talk to them, but you're just doing it. You know, you're working where you're working. So it's, uh, it, it wasn't a click per se. It was just sort of the way the mechanics of just doing the show and sitting on a set worked out. Yeah. But Jamie did become part of the quote main cast. And so therefore he was in those scenes that required him to be rehearsing and dealing with the, those particular actors that were in all those scenes. So like I said, it wasn't an emotional thing. It wasn't uh, discriminatory. It was just simply, you know, the mechanics of doing your job, really. All right. Let's go back to the phone lines. This is a voicemail from Stan. Hey, guys. This is Stan from North Carolina. I've started my three-minute timer, and I hope I can get this in in time. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for doing this awesome podcast. Of course, I'm a big fan of MASH. I have been since I was a kid. I used to steal all kinds of TVs just to watch the show, uh, but I won't get into that. I'm a law-abiding citizen now, and, uh, and I'm gainfully employed, so no more stealing televisions for me. In fact, I uh, recently did have a major operation, and in my recovery, a big part of that was watching MASH. I got to sit on the couch and watch the whole series again, But I've been listening to the podcast before that, so in watching the show, I got to have that perspective of, you know, looking for Jeff and seeing all the great uh, subtle things that he's doing, really funny stuff. I called because uh, I have a story. It's actually not my story. uh, It belongs to a friend of mine. He um, is an actor from Minneapolis, and he knows that I'm a big fan of MASH, and he told me that he did the touring show that you mentioned, Ryan, in a previous podcast, The uh, Odd Couple, where William Christopher and Jamie Farr play uh, Oscar and Felix. And his observation was that William Christopher was just a party animal. Uh, he was a good time, Charlie, had a great time with the cast every night, and uh, in the meantime, Jamie Farr was very quiet, and he would go to his room, smoke a cigar, and, and read a book. And his observation was that was really interesting. Given their characters, you might expect them to sort of be the opposite. And so that's my question to you, Jeff, is that, you know, are there actors on the show that have personality quirks, attributes that we wouldn't expect given their characters, that that 
they would be unexpected. I know you talked about Roy Goldman being one of the funniest guys you know, and yet on camera, he is just a regular guy, partly because of stage fright or whatever. But um, anyway, that's my question. You know, I uh, several years ago, somebody did take a television of mine, and, uh, and <laughs> I, I now know if there's any way you can get it back. It was a Zenith remote control, <laughs> one of the first. Zenith. I think it was color. I'm not sure. I don't remember, but it doesn't matter. Yes. If you could return it, I'd really appreciate it because it's probably valuable now as an antique. So, yeah, but it's good that you're out of that business because it you never know. All those tubes and things, it's hard to keep them straight. Uh, <laughs> um, so Stan brings up uh, something interesting in that uh, during the run of this play, it appears that um, Mr. Jamie Farr was more of the Felix yeah. and that William Christopher was more of the Oscar, mm-hmm. which is not the role they played on stage yeah. and he's interested to know if there were any other big differences between some of the actors the roles they played and how they were off camera well uh, I can say one thing about Alan Alda Alan on the camera as the character in the show was quite a drinker he would love to drink all those martinis or whatever else the heck they were drinking in reality however not a drinker. Hmm. And uh, we used to have, uh, after the show was done, usually every week, somebody would buy pizzas. And so they would bring in about eight different pizzas on the set. And it, once the show was over, or the shooting was over, everybody would sit around and eat pizza and drink beer. Alan, I saw him drink beer once and he really got loopy. <laughs> <laughs> and so he is a quote teetotaler and he's indicated that, you know, he doesn't drink because he gets a little goofy and uh, even sometimes gets mean. <laughs> mm. So he doesn't do it. So there you got a character who is drinking like crazy and the actor who does not drink at all, really. So that's one I can think of. Mm. Igor, who is kind of a goofball uh, behind the steam table, uh-huh. was actually kind of a Casanova in real life. <laughs> And uh, was in and out of constant trouble with women for years. So I can say that's certainly different. Uh, On-screen goofball, off-screen Casanova. You've heard it here first. Yeah. That's quite the scoop. I think so. I'm trying to be as honest as our television thief was because I expect him (laughs) saying that. And I come up to his level of honesty. All right. Next from Keith Lukianowitz. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Keith, if I didn't, I'm very, very sorry. Mm -hmm. Greetings, Jeff and Ryan. I just wanted to drop a line and let you both know that I love the podcast. I discovered it about a month ago, which is probably about 18 months ago at this point. And it has been so much fun getting caught up with the previous episodes as well as looking forward to the new ones. I thought it might be fun to send along something my brother and I did with the help of a mutual friend of ours back in 1989 or 1990. It's a tape we made using a handheld cassette recorder doing a mostly improvised mash episode at the time i would have been 14 or 15 years old and my brother and his friend about 19 or 20 this is so unbelievably silly and hilarious to us anyway i wonder if any of the humor translates to anyone other than us especially someone who was actually on the show as well as a super fan of the show i'm not asking that this be used for the podcast in any way Eh, too late i really just wanted to share it and see if you had any reaction couple of notes about the recording the sound quality is not great but it is listenable. I did the voices of Frank Burns, Radar, and Father Mulcahy. My brother did Colonel Blake, Klinger, Trapper, and Hawkeye. Our friend also did Trapper and Hawkeye. They switched at some point for no apparent reason. And Hot Lips. Background music is Henry Mancini's cover of Suicide is Painless, which in of itself is 
pretty hilarious and probably is what inspired us to make the tape in the first place. Anyway, I hope you find it at least somewhat amusing and enjoyable. If nothing else, it illustrates the level of fandom that we obviously had and still have for the show. I mean, no one could do something like this if they weren't a total mash geek in the first place, right? All right, so Keith actually sent us the entire 14-minute-long audio track of this episode that they improvised. Now, I have listened to all 14 minutes of it. (laughs) Yes. I am not going to subject our listeners... To all 14 minutes of it. It is very interesting to listen to. And not because of the mash, but because it brought back many memories of me doing the exact same thing with my handy little tape recorder when I was a kid. I would make up my own shows. I would, you know, improvise things, do my little plays, do my little radio shows. Problem is, is I usually didn't have anybody to do it with. So it was me doing all the voices. But Keith, I did listen to it, and I am going to play a snippet. Oh, great. Oh, that's exciting. And like you said, the audio quality is not great, but you have to understand, for all you youngsters listening, the cassette recorders back then were not high fidelity, let's just say. So this is Keith and his friends and a snippet from their MASH episode on audio cassette. Enjoy. Now all we got to do is catch uh, Henry on a good day. Yeah, uh, uh, you know what? Klinger had that disco album. I bet you if we steal a couple of bras from Houlihan's tent, we can borrow from him. What do you say? It's worth a try. Okay. Klinger! Boy, it smells like a Limburger cheese factory in here. <laughs> what do you guys want? Klinger, I got an idea. How would you like some new lace bras? Oh, lace bras. They're not going to give me a section 8. Well, here's the deal. You know that groovy disco album you got? Oh, the one with uh, Henry Mancini and the Brothers Gibb? That's it. If you give us that, we need to give the Henry for some weekend passes. And we'll get to some more negligees while we're in Tokyo. But we'll give these bras now for the album. What do you say? Eh, uh, how do I know you guys are legal? Well, uh, here. Here's the bras. Fine lace. Oh, that's beautiful. My Aunt Rosie had a bra just like this. And your Uncle Bird, I'm sure, too. Can you give us the album, Klinger? Oh, okay, but I'm going to miss it. Go ahead, take it, you guys. Thanks, Klinger. Klinger. (laughs) (laughs) Bravo! Bravo! Yes. Well, you know, uh, gosh, Keith, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. So, (laughs) you know, I was kind of into it. Good. You know, good. It, it had it had some 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 depth, a little humor, uh, certain you know stuff going on, the characterizations. Uh-huh. By golly, I think there's a uh, you know there's room for you and the gang that helped you do that. Maybe uh, in another country somewhere where they don't speak English or know what you're talking about. But other than that, it might work for you. Thank you, Keith, for sending that to us. Please don't take any offense to anything I said. I think it was fantastic what you guys did and very brave for you to share something that you did when you were 14 years old on a cassette recorder. You know, darn good for a 14-year-old. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm actually impressed. I thought that was pretty darn good. All right. Well, we started this episode with a message from Australia. Why don't we wrap up this episode with another message from Australia? Good day, Jeff and Ryan. Greetings from down under. I cannot do an Australian accent. 
accent, so I'm not going to try because I fail miserably at it. I don't know why, but I can't. I've been, and this is from Matthew James Gibson. I've thoroughly enjoyed binging your podcast, and now that I finally caught up, I thought I'd send my MASH story as it were. My stepmom introduced us to MASH when I was eight years old. I didn't really get the excitement then after the couple of episodes that I watched, but when I got to high school, MASH reruns were on TV every day after school, and I caught the end of one episode, and that was that. In my final year at school, MASH helped me get an A plus on my last ethics class exam. Hell, that's pretty cool. We had to determine a person's worldview based on some lyrics. Those lyrics were an excerpt of the MASH theme song and the worldview obviously stemming from nihilism. Interesting side note that I don't believe you've mentioned because it's about the movie. I read that the theme song, Suicide is Painless, was written by the son of the director of the original movie, which led to the somewhat successful TV show we know and love. And the son made more money in royalties for writing the song than his father did for directing the movie. Mm -hmm. I own the box set of MASH and would like to sell it to somebody because I need the money. (laughs) That's not true. He didn't write that. I own the box set of MASH, and when I watched it in full for the first time, I had a minor panic attack because I got to the last disc and remembered a bunch of MASH stories that I hadn't seen in this viewing. I thought I'd missed a disc somewhere along the way, but not knowing which one, I proceeded to watch the final episode anyway, only to discover that all of the missing episodes were actually all of the subplots of the big finale. It made sense to me when you were discussing the writing process of having a wall of story ideas and grabbing a few and trying them together and calling it an episode. So long and thanks for all the fish. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Matthew, thank you for writing from all the way down under there. um, Yeah. Saying those things. That's that's interesting stuff. Yeah. Suicide is painless. The story goes is that Robert Altman, who was the director of the film, he wanted a song for the scene where the painless pole, uh, his his unsuccessful suicide. So Robert Altman goes to Johnny Mandel, who created the music for MASH, and said, I want a song. And here are the two stipulations. I want it to be called Suicide is Painless. And I want it to be, quote, the stupidest song ever written. So Altman himself, he tried to write the lyrics, but he found it too difficult for him to write stupid stupid enough, uh, as he said. So he asks his 14-year-old son to write the lyrics to that song. His 14-year-old son, Michael, writes the lyrics in five minutes. <laughs> and then his, Altman actually liked the song so much, he uses it as the main theme for the film, even though Johnny Mandel didn't like that. And then, of course, the music from that went on to be the theme song for the TV show. But as Matthew mentioned, Robert Altman, he made $70,000 for directing the movie. His son, Michael, has earned more than a million dollars Wow! for having co-written the song because the song actually went to number one on the charts at one point. The other thing, there was a running theme through this episode in that, hey, I watched this when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I hated it. But then when I got a little bit older in high school and college and on, I started really, really digging it. And now it's my all-time favorite show. that's been a running theme through like three or four of the messages that we got today, including Matthew's there. So I found that very interesting as well. Yeah, that happens to many people who watch the show. You know, when you're a kid, it may not be as interesting as, you know, watching a Saturday morning cartoon or or watching one of your own favorite shows. But over time, it grows on you. It grows on you. I have a, a confession to make. When MASH first came on the air, I was not on it. 
I had nothing to do with it, really. I had cast some of the extras and uh, smaller parts in the movie. I was familiar with the movie, but I had really nothing to do with the show. And when it came on the air and I watched it, I didn't particularly like it. It didn't get me. Hmm. I thought some of the characterizations weren't terribly good. Part of uh, what Alan Alda was doing kind of bothered me. And some of the deliveries I thought were kind of weird. I wasn't crazy about it. So it wasn't part of my daily viewing of television. When I got hired on it, however... I started paying much more attention to it, and uh, I've discovered and realized how good it was. <laughs> and so it's odd that I kind of, you know, I s- share some of that. You know, I wasn't uh, a kid yeah. when I first saw it, but it just didn't it didn't hit me. It didn't resonate with me at all. It didn't hit me emotionally or anything. It wasn't crazy about the characters. And so it wasn't until I, later and I started really paying attention to it and, and paying more attention to the content uh, that I really kind of went, oh, this is good. I, I told you it was a good show. I know. You've been telling me this for how long we've been doing this now? Since 2018, you've been saying, Jeff, it's a good show. It's a good show. Yeah, all right. It's all right. Okay, all right. We'll do, do the podcast. All right. Thanks for finally giving it a chance. Okay. I'm in. All right. And we're out. That wraps up this episode of MASH Matters. We have we, we, we have 300 more questions we have to get to. <laughs> we do. And we will get to them in future episodes. And you can keep those questions coming. MASHmatterspodcast.com. You can tweet us at, uh, at MASH Matters, Facebook, YouTube. Subscribe and listen to us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. You can also call and leave a voicemail, 513-436-4077. Just make sure to set your timer and uh, keep that message under three minutes or just just record a voice memo in your phone and send it to us. We'll be back with more questions and more interviews and more shenanigans coming up in the next episode of MASH Matters. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Ryan. Fine work. Fine work. Finest kind. And until then, here's looking up your old address. Mm-hmm.